Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith Esquire. I'm the owner of Royal Legal Solutions. You're home for all things real estate, asset protection, tax, legal, business, you name it, we got it. Um, I'm here with a good friend of mine, Michael. Uh, Michael's going to be sharing us with some uh, high, high, high level type of wisdom today. I'm really excited uh, to share that with you guys. Um, Michael, um, you want to kick us off and, and just let us know, um, do you, or do you want to talk about a worst deal or a best deal today? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? You know, whatever, whatever works, but you just set me up. I, I hope I don't fail now. <laughs> we like to set the bar high here, you know, just really yeah, ratchet up the pressure on you. But uh, yeah, let's, let's jump into a, uh, let's jump into a worse deal. If you got one, a lot of times those sometimes have the best lessons in it with the idea being that what we want to do, Michael, is, is give the listeners an idea of saying, you know, um, while they're going through their life, they're going to see something that's going to be similar to the, you know, to your story, no matter what your story is, you know, generally speaking, they're going to find something. So they're going to be like, Hey, this is exactly like what happened to Michael. And I can learn from, you know, his experience sure. there. So does something come to mind as, you know, just from a high level? I, you know, there's, um, there are two deals and they're kind of different and similar. And, and one turned out not to be a deal. And I, I'd love to, to share that one in the beginning. And then I can move on to the second one, which um, has a lot of meat to it. And there'll be a pun in there when we start talking about it. Cool. Well, let's, um, let's look to um, what's going on with the, with the first one. Sure. Um, and what's going on with you actually before you get into that deal? Like, can you set the stage for us a little bit of like what's happening in your life? Where are you at in your investing career? You know, et cetera? Absolutely. Um, started investing when I was an adult teenager. And that was like a long time ago. Because I'm 57 years young now. And so I don't know, whatever 19 is from 57, what is that, 38 years? I love it. I'm a wholesaler, And what wholesaling means for me is I buy it low. I take title. I take it at an as-is value, a percentage of that. I don't flip it. And if I don't, I'm sorry, I don't fix and flip it. I absolutely sell it at 100%. And I like the model. It makes me more money than wholesaling would typically. Um, and... Um, I just, I just enjoy it. And I've done hundreds and hundreds if not over a thousand of them. And um, I, um, I love it. I love real estate. I don't think I'd change it. It's allowed me to have everything that I have in life. And I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I own yellowletters.com. I own a phone company. I own print, uh, print companies, all kinds of things. And it's all because of real estate. So I, I, I kind of like it. But let's talk about this first deal that was yeah. never, a, never a deal. And it has to be the worst thing that could ever happen to someone. Um, I took a coaching student out in my local marketplace. He, um, he wanted to get a deal and he wanted to learn the, the presentation. So I took him with me or actually went with him. And the setup was introduce me as your student, although he was my student. But it was his appointment and I wanted to give him all the credibility that he needed. And um, so he introduced me as a student and he kind of fell flat. So he, he, he got shy all of a sudden and he couldn't speak to the, to the consumer or the seller. Well, I was talking to him as a man and a wife and I, we were going through the presentation. We were doing everything. I had this man crying, thanking me. So he'd give me hugs, tears going down his cheeks. 
at that point, I, I told my student, I said, I'm going to go out, make some phone calls in my vehicle. You wrap it up from here because it was wrapped up. All he had to do is get a contract signed. And I go out to my car and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. I'm waiting so long. It's getting awkward now. And I'm thinking maybe they've chopped him up inside the house or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. so, so finally he comes out to me with this dejected look like, you know, he, he just, he got bad news. And I said, so dude, what happened? And he said, they didn't sign the contract. I said, why? He says, well, I started talking. And that's the worst thing we can do is not realize that when we've said enough and when we have said enough, stop talking. And so he continued on the, his presentation, although he fell flat on his presentation in the beginning. So anything he had said after I had left was a negative to the seller because he wasn't in charge. I was the one that was in charge. And we left that day without a, a contract, even though I had a, guy, a grown man hugging me and giving me tears because he was so happy I was going to solve his problem. So I always, I always tell people, man, the worst thing we can do is, is not get the contract. Well, I mean, it, yeah, but that's kind of like one of those pieces, Michael, where it's like, in a, in a, you're not present. You know what I mean? Like that with that guy, like he wasn't present in the moment. If you're thinking like you're, there's a guy that's there in tears, he's all at it, you know, given that whole piece and, and he's not present in the moment to realize what's going on with this person. And am I actually here with them and actually, or am I just doing a robotic presentation, but nobody wants to do business with somebody that has like, that they think the other side is a robot. Right. You and know? you know, I found out a long time ago that when someone offers me something, so if I'm sitting at the kitchen table, round if it is, if it's square, I'm not going to sit at it, but a round kitchen table with the seller. And at some point, they're going to offer me a beer, a glass of water, some iced tea, some coffee, whatever it is, they're going to offer it to me. And yes, if they offer me a beer and serve themselves a beer, I will accept a beer. I won't drink it, but I'll accept it. And what I learned from the moment someone offers me something of theirs of value is to stop talking. Because we don't give someone something unless everything they've said up to that point has satisfied our need. So the moment they say, would you like a bottled water? They've closed themselves. That's a closing signal. So when they ask you if, if you want something, say politely, say, absolutely, please do. Take it. If it's something that you consume in, in front of them, by all means. But then go to the contract. They're ready to sign out an agreement. But up until that point, they're not ready. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that yourself, but there, you know, consumers give us little signals and little hints, little triggers that we can, we can see or not see, I guess. And, um, and fall forward. The well, second, I, this, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Just to jump into that, Michael, just to kind of, cause I wanted to underscore a couple of key pieces into that is, um, at least what I was picking up, I wanted to ask you a question. It's real. Is that really like really talking about, you know, uh, you're talking about like they close themselves and you say stop talking, but what I, what I, what I think you're getting at there to, is about how, um, how to actually, actually how to listen to what it is that they're really trying to tell you and then to say like, okay, I can actually just stop now and then now it's the time for me to listen to actually, you know, they're going to want to connect with me now. I've already given them some things to connect with. Now they want to connect with me and then we're going to be able to move it forward from that point. And isn't that kind of like where that whole heart of the idea behind selling is, is that you make your pitch and then you shut up and the first one that talks loses? No, it wasn't, a, it wasn't about like stop talking in general. I mean, stop talking about real estate. 
So you don't have to, you don't have to continue your presentation because they're already bought. They've already, you've already sold them something when they offer something to us. And, but, but a lot of us, we, we, we're not comfortable not talking about real estate in front of someone that wants to sell us a house. But I, but I would move off to the Dodgers and the Yankees or the Red Sox or whatever, you know, the top of mind sport is or, or um, whatever news item is. And I'd start talking about that one, but I'd, I'm going to stop talking about real estate. I'm just going to open up my contracts, my agreement, fill it out, write an X where they need to sign and say, sign here. And I'm okay with it. Now the, the art of negotiation, which I think a lot of people um, need to work on is me giving you my idea, my opinion in a way that causes you to own it as yours. So you can hand it back to me and I can agree with it. And when we do that successfully, our lives changed. Now we're not convincing people to do something they're unwilling to do. Let's face that. We can't, we can't convince someone to sell a house at a discount unless they have that need and desire. But through the art of negotiation, we can present them with the ability to set a price that causes us to say yes. And um, so I, I like negotiation and all the conversations that we have with, with sellers. And um, I think listening is important because we are there to solve a problem. I mean, we're basically doctors of real estate, if nothing else. Um, we, we rarely buy houses. We, we always solve problems. And the, the house is just the vehicle um, that we're exchanging our money for. So can we dive into that a little more, Michael? Because when you're talking about presenting an idea to somebody that they're going to adopt as their own, you're talking about the, high, the highest possible way of communicating, right? Like you're not really trying to um, fight with somebody about an idea. You're trying to package your idea in a way that already jives with beliefs that they currently have, right? Right. So if, as an example, if, if, if someone gives me their motivation and I build on their motivation um, or build a value into my product, which is buying their house, and give that back to them, well, they, they can now agree with me. And, and most of us, have, I don't know, most people will, will name a price like, tell me how much you'll pay me for my house. I never tell someone what their house is worth or, and what I'm going to give them for it. I absolutely will never list, uh, name a price. I will ask them, however, what they plan on selling me the house for today. And I'm going to use embedded commands, mimicking, pacing, positive negative reinforcements. And I'm going to mimic the, the heck out of it. But I'm always going to ask them if they can reduce the price. Is that the lowest you can go, knowing that I'm going to do all these things for you? And when they get to a point that I can say yes to it, um, then I'm going to say yes. And it, like, what, what's your favorite color? Blue. Blue. Really? <laughs> well, do I need something more exotic to be interesting? Right. Oh, or yeah. I could have said, hey, blue, yeah. that's cool. That's a cool color. Yeah. So based upon what you tell me, I can give that back to you in a way that's going to cause you to think next time I ask you another question. How do, because we, you know, we started our conversation off today talking about dogs, right? And, and salivating. Well, sellers salivate too. And, and we need to get them to. And um, I always, always ask three closes on a, on a price reduction. And every time they move, you ask three more times for a price reduction. So if they keep lowering their price, they're, no, they're not yet at the lowest price they'll go. Now, I won't negotiate anybody lower than 50%, even though I know I can. There has to be a, a, a bottom because we shouldn't do just because we, we can do something. We shouldn't do it. And so um, I'll keep asking them 
and then they hit 50%, I'm stopping. Uh, most of the time they're going to be in the 60s and that's fine. They're going to start in the 80s and um, we just have to prove our worth and our value and then have conversation with them and allow them to own our idea. So. That's fantastic, Michael. I think that there's probably quite a bit of training um, that, uh, that comes into to being able to one, you know, fully grasp how to do that and then two, probably a ton of experience and actually doing it to get comfortable with it. I, I always tell people, if you want to learn how to negotiate, how to, how to communicate, go talk to a three-year-old. Why is that? They're going to be the most pure individual that you can, you can speak to. Right. They're just, like just straightforward. Just straightforward. They don't know how to lie yet. And, and then have that conversation with them and you'll, you'll be amazed how you can negotiate with them um, in a way that, that causes success. Um, don't go to do it with someone that's not your own three-year-old, though. That would be horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, so, so what do you think happened? You know, obviously, you had, um, you had your student that was there, right? You were taking them through the real estate. They had gone through your training um, with it. You know, where, where, what happened in that scenario where somebody that even had, you know, a lot of training by you, obviously, you're, you're um, you know, a master of this craft uh, that, that drops the ball? Because I think that happens to a lot of people, right, where they – they, they take a course, they learn something, and then they go, you know, try to try it out. And then they, they, um, they don't execute well. Um, well, they, they don't practice well. And because you, you, execution is just a manifestation of practice, right? Yeah. And, I mean, they don't have the Michael Jordan syndrome where you're the first one at the gym and the last one to go home. We, you know, a lot of people think they can just get up to the plate and hit a home run. That's not going to happen. You have to constantly be practicing and practicing and practicing. And I call it role-playing. And storytelling, it's like one of the biggest advantages someone could teach themselves how to do, and that is storytell. So what is a story? A story is anything. It's, 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 it has a subject. It has a, you know, a, a, it goes someplace. I mean, you're talking about something. But a lot of us don't practice storytelling. And you have to practice storytelling if you're going to be a good negotiator because you don't know where the conversation is going to go at all times. And you have to be prepared for it. And... We just think, okay, we're going to say these three sentences and get a contract signed. It's not going to happen that way. And so I think role playing constantly, practice, and, and storytell constantly. So storytell, you want to you want to um, practice it a little bit? So or yeah, let's try it out. All right. So I'm going to say three words. Fair enough. Okay. And I want you to, when you hear those three words, say three words after that, but they have to make sense to my three words. You ready? Sure. Sky's blue. The grass is green. Sometimes, but not always. Uh, in the winter. So if you <laughs> do this, think about doing this. Yeah. From a real estate perspective, think about the amount of professional knowledge and presentation that you would have after you've done it several days in a row. You know, lay your head on your pillow at night. If you have someone that's laying next to you, say, this is what we're going to do. We're, I'm going to say three words. You say three words. I'll say three words. You never know. It may end up someplace nice. It may be awkward, but at least it's going to get you over the, the hurdle of, I don't know how to negotiate, don't know how to communicate. And, um, and then on, on, on practicing, you know, positive and negative reinforcements, uh, when we chat with folks, uh, go a long way, which is what I did with you the, with the color uh, blue. But so is pacing. I mean, most people, when they have a conversation, they outpace 
their prospect. They're, they're in too much of a hurry or they're not in a hurry enough. And, and so I learned this a long, long time ago. I bought a house from a lady. She, everything was great. She was happy. We always do a, a after the fact survey. So we always survey our prospects. How do we do kind of thing? And she did not know that I was the owner and I, I'm never one that would tell someone I'm the owner kind of thing. So in her survey that she gave us back, she said the, the young man, she was an older lady, the young man was really nice and polite, but he wouldn't let me show him my garage. And I thought, wow, we went to contract. She agreed to the price. Her kids were there. Everybody was happy. But what the thing I didn't do is pace with her. I didn't allow her to communicate with me the way she wanted to. And she wanted to show me the garage. I didn't even know it. So, and so I failed. And so pace could be things like that. Pace could be talking too fast, talking too slow. Um, nothing really gets done if you're pushing against each other or pulling against each other. You have to have an equal pace with someone. And um, mimicking is great too. I don't, do you have any kids? Uh, I don't have any kids, but I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And like one of the easiest ways to relate to them is like getting down at their level and then like changing like the volume of your voice to match theirs. Like you just start mimicking, you know, everything to be as close to them as you possibly can. And it seems to work really great with bringing well, kids into you. That's why we have accents. I mean, we're not born with a Southern accent, right? It's not in our DNA. But what it is, is as a child, all those folks around us that we love and like and appreciate, they, they speak a certain way and they speak like each other. And then we take on their accent and their dialogue. Well, when we negotiate, we should do the same thing if we can. And um, mimicking's friggin' awesome. But anyway, getting to my second deal, can I tell you about my second yeah, deal? Yeah, let's hear about the second deal. All right. So it's, it's right out of like a, a crime movie. But I bought, a, I bought a, a house with a little house behind it. So it wasn't quite a duplex, but it was like an in-laws quarter. And the, the crazy thing was, is there was a double homicide in the house. And so, you know, when you watch TV and the FBI, they, everybody's covering their, their nose when they walk into a murder scene. Yeah. It actually does smell like that. I don't know how it smells over the TV, but in real life, it's terrible. So I buy this house. And it was a, a, a short sale that the lender pretty much gave away because they just didn't want the house because double homicide. But inside of the double homicide, then there was an attempted arson. So the person that killed the two people came back and tried to burn down the house to hide the evidence of the murders. That didn't work. And um, it was gory because body parts were blown up all over the walls and it's a horrible deal. However, made a considerable amount of money. I flipped it. I didn't fix it. I, I flipped it to another investor who fixed it up and someone's living in the place now and loving it. And, and I bring this deal up because a lot of people are so afraid of doing the deals that are unusual, that don't conform. And those are the deals where we make all the money. I mean, if I could buy every ugly house in my city, I mean, every house that no one wanted, I buy them over every pretty house because I mean, everybody wants a pretty house. So there's no value in that pretty house to me, but there is value in ugly. And in this situation, it was really ugly. And um, it, was, um, it was a piece of cake. We, we closed escrow on the short, resold it. No, no restrictions on the short. 
And again, the lender just, just wanted um, to get rid of the, the inventory and they knew that they couldn't sell it traditionally. And as a real estate investor who solves problems, I solved their problem. Is that like a, a piece that you have to know how to do is how to sell a piece, an ugly house? Because I think a lot of people don't want to go outside of their, their normal piece that they're used to uh, being able to, um, you know, do, right? Like you see a lot of investors lose money swimming outside their lane and doing things that aren't part of what their core business model is. But it sounds like you've made, you know, uh, either part of your core business model, how to sell ugly houses, or you understand something different that allows you to, to feel comfortable even in those non-traditional type of sales. Well, in my history of, of buying houses and, and selling houses, I know that the core inventory is below the median value for the city. So I'm not going to buy a million dollar house and, and flip it unless my median in my city was $2 million because then the million would be an ugly house. Um, what I have found with the under median valued houses are is that our buyer pool is twice as large as it is when they're above median. And so the two sides of the buyer pool are owner ox. So people that will buy the house and move into it. And the mm -hmm. other is investor buyers who want to buy a house to rent it. Um, or to fix it and flip it into something different. And I like that market. And when I say something is ugly, it's only ugly to me. What I learned a long time ago is I can't predispose my prospect to have my opinion about what I think is good and bad. So although I want them to have my opinion about value and negotiate with, with sales price, I'm not going to place you know, I think everybody should drive a Rolls Royce onto every one of my prospects. If they have a, you know, a beat up little Camry out there that's 15 years old, I'm fine with it. And when I, in, when I buy under houses under median, my ugly is their pretty, if that makes any sense. So the person, the prospect that would live in those neighborhoods, there's nothing wrong with those houses. But to me, they're ugly. And I think most, most investors would look at that house and go, no, I'm not buying that house. It's an ugly market, ugly house. It's too much work. But if you looked at the consumer and if you did your six packs, which is, is your critiquing of the neighborhood, if you did those correctly, you'd realize that your consumer doesn't see what we see and doesn't have the same value that we have. And to them, their neighborhoods are great. I mean, I wouldn't park my truck on my grass in the front lawn of my house but they do, I, and I can't ridicule them for doing that because they're my buyer. And yeah, so well, they're, they're your customer, right? And I think that's like a lot of times people, they fall in love with real estate and they fall in love with houses. When, when every successful business owner and entrepreneur out there recommends that you don't fall in love with your product, what you do is you fall in love with your customer to find out who are their customer, like at the deepest levels and find out how can you get them what they want, even if it's not anything that you necessarily really care about, you know? that's not the game the game is getting other people what they want and then you make money in the process right absolutely and, it, and we all we have to be cognizant of our business model what is our business model what does it tell us we you know what are the boundaries what are the ethical boundaries or the moral boundaries and legal boundaries i always tell people if they do them in those three in that order legal last legal is going to fall in line but something can be legal but not ethical something can be legal but immoral so i always go to the ethics and morality first and, and then legal. I, um, I love it when a consumer, when a seller apologizes about their house. I, I, I think if, if a new investor can hear anything, hear those thing, that thing. When you're out with a prospect 
and they apologize to you about their house, they are highly motivated to sell you that house. Highly motivated. And they'll do things like, I'm sorry, my house is messy. No, it's, it's not messy. It ha you haven't cleaned this house in a year kind of thing, but I'm not going to bring that to their attention. But when they say, I am sorry, I apologize for the fist holes in the walls and the doors. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that I have cockroaches all over the place, those kinds of things. I mean, I bought a house one time. I couldn't stop that stand still or cockroaches would crawl up my leg. And um, it is what it is. So if, if a prospect apologizes, they're highly motivated and, and go to buy in a house. Well, I think it's always a great thing. You know, it's, um, you just got to take, you know, people where they're at and, you know, take reality as it is and then move forward with it, whatever it's going to be. You know, if you're squeamish about saying, Hey, I'm only going to do X, Y, Z type of deal, you're probably missing out, you know, on, on some more the real value is because if you're willing to do the pieces that other people aren't, you know, and work on the things that other people aren't, that that's probably where you find, uh, you know, a ton of value. And that can be, you know, not just having to go to ugly houses, but that can just be like the hard work or the boring work or the, um, you know, having to have the endurance and, and grit to, to be able to, you know, move through the business. Um, because if it was really, if it was easy and everybody wanted to do it, everybody would already be doing it. And, and that means that there's no money there anymore, right? Sure. So I, I think that, that's awesome, Michael. Yeah, the um, I remember I walked out. To the, I went out to a house one day. My inbound questionnaire that I received from um, my operators said that the person it was written down on the piece of paper that he wanted two hundred seventy-two thousand dollars for his house, and uh, it was only worth around two hundred seventy thousand. That's all it was worth. However, at the time in my life, I had a policy that I'd go out to every house where the seller was in reality land or less. They couldn't be in fantasy land, they, so they couldn't want three hundred thousand for a two hundred seventy thousand dollar house. But if they wanted less than what it was worth, I'm going to go out there and, and use technique. So drive up to this house. Nothing wrong with it. It's a pretty house. It doesn't fit my business model. It is absolutely the house. I'm on a wasted appointment. It says he wants two hundred seventy two. It's worth two hundred seventy ish. It's pretty. There's nothing I can. I can't cause this to make me any money. I knock on the door, I step back six feet so he can get a, a good profile of me to be comfortable and confident that I'm the guy that's supposed to be buying his house. I've got my I buy houses folder in my hand. I've done my six packs. I'm ready to do nothing because there's just no way I'm gonna convince this guy to sell me his house at a discount. He answers the door, I say, thank you for inviting me out to buy your house today is where I'm parked okay. I always wanna create a fair relationship by asking him where I parked is okay. I always park across the street, never in front of the house. I point to my vehicle that's always clean and nice. And he says, yep, you're here to buy my house. I say, I am. I understand you want how much for your house? He said, I told the lady over the phone I wanted $202,000 for my house. I'm going in for back surgery next week. I cannot have my house. My bedroom's upstairs. My doctor said there's no way I'm going to be up those stairs over the next couple of years. I owe $202,000 on my house. It's yours at $202,000. 202 and 272 are a lot different, right? <laughs> That's great. But I bring that story up, that incident up, because there were so many reasons for me to just have, have stayed in my car, not gone through the knocking on the door, parking across the street, all those things that we're supposed to do. Um, I, I, I could have canned it and left and went back to the office, but I made 70 grand. Actually, $65,000 net. I replaced the carpet in the house and sold it. Um, within 10 days. So it's like a fast sell. And 
And the seller was okay selling it to me for 202. He knew what he was doing, but he knew that the life that he was going to have after back surgery didn't afford him to have a two-story house with a master bedroom upstairs. I, I guess so that the flip side of that story too is that a bunch of times when that happens and you have the same setup, uh, I don't think I'm going to get anything out of this deal. There's really no value I can add to it. You park across the street, you have the folder in hand, you step six feet back and you go through the rigmarole uh, of, the, of the setup that nothing happens that's positive from that encounter, right? Which is why you have that belief of, oh, this is probably not going to be worthwhile anything. But one of the things that's a lesson that I see time and time again as part of like the lesson learned from today is that we have to be willing to go through the processes we know that lead to success, even though most times they fail because at the times that they actually work, that's when we get all of the benefit from it, right? Well, it's a, and even a failure is still a success in a way because you need failures to be successful. Yeah, for sure. But it definitely doesn't feel like that when well, you get like 90 rejections in a row and you're like, okay, cool. Well, I know I, and I'm going to get eight more rejections and then I'm going to get those last two that are going to work and that's going to pay for everything I need for the whole next year. I think that, that's difficult emotionally for people, but I think that's probably different, different than most of the, like the, um, you don't hear about that, right? That's the part of the story you don't hear about, which is like how hard it is to network because networking is brutal because you end up meeting for every you know one person that you meet that is actually helpful to you, you've gone through 15 that aren't. And for how many sales calls do you have to go on before you get the one um, that's successful and has like the major win on it. But that becomes part of the process. And I think it becomes a lot easier once you can just accept that as being like, that's just how this goes. And then I can get comfortable with what my expectations are around, you know, how does it work and how do I know I'm doing well is because I actually am doing the process that I know that works, not because it works not because I win every single time, right? So you have Esquire behind your name, correct? Yeah. Now, I know what that means. And I know that you took what the baby bar probably? Oh, I took the Texas bar and the New York bar. Okay. So that probably cost you a couple dollars to learn how to do all that, correct? Yeah, I think law school typically on average is like around $150,000. So you spent how many years and, and how much money total getting that? getting that yeah. Title. Probably, yeah it's about three like three and a half years so three and a half years and a hundred fifty thousand dollars yeah and how i went out on this house and made sixty five thousand dollars in 10 days mm -hmm. theoretically it i should have taken three years three and a half years lost a hundred and fifty thousand dollars just to be at a break-even point right i guess uh, my point is is a lot of investors getting in the game, they don't understand that you're not going to hit the home run every day. And it's okay. Most of us spend a bucket load of money on education to hit the home run. Um, and oh, yeah. I, I think that that's probably flipped, right? I think a lot of times with the, what you see is most successful for people is actually small bits of um, education and actually huge amounts of execution actually being much more powerful. Absolutely. A lot of time in the classroom. Absolutely. And, you know, I remember the first time I cold called and I cold called for a year. Um, and it's one of the hardest things we could ever do. I thought MMA was hard, but cold calling is worse. Uh, the, the, I, I pick up this phone. I'm a grown man. I pick up this phone and it, I, I was shaking. I, like I was, I was trembling. I was like having like attacks. I had to set the phone back down. I picked it up again and it was like murderous. I thought I, evil was coming. I, I put it down. I picked it up for the third time. I said to myself, Mike, you're a grown man. 
you can do this. The fourth time I picked it up, someone said, hello. And I said, hi, my name's Michael Corls, looking for three and four bedroom homes in your neighborhood. and just wondering who do you know that's looking to move? And she says, I'm not looking to move, but I am looking to buy. And my life changed because I realized I could get over a struggle, a fear, whatever it was in the moment. And it is just a numbers, numbers game. I ended up um, selling her two, um, two properties over the, my lifetime that I've known her. And um, all you got to do is do it. And absolutely, it gets hard. Absolutely, it's frustrating and stressful. And there's fear attached to everything we do in life. But um, so what? Yeah, well, that's part of the growth, right? I mean, that comes through it is that if you're not pushing up against, I have a sign that sits right behind my desk that says uh, that life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. And it's, and it's about like, if we're not pushing those boundaries of what's fearful for us and what's uncomfortable for us, it probably means we're actually not growing. It probably means we're actually living pretty well inside of our bubble, inside of our safe zone, which means that we're not acquiring new skills and that we're not actually really embracing what the, the cool parts about life are, which is the stuff that's new and it, the new and exciting pieces. But, but if we're so afraid of things being uncomfortable that we don't ever push up against that, um, what you end up with is, is a life where um, at the end of it, you're like, oh, I wish I would have taken more risks. You know, if you go and speak to um, the elderly people inside of your, whatever the elder care community is, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I would encourage everybody to do it. I did it when I was in high school and it changed my life and, and did it again in college and ask them, what are the things that you would do differently now being at the end of your life? Everybody says, I, I wish I would have taken more risks and I wish I would have traveled more unanimously. That's across the board. And I was like, man, and it hit me at that moment of saying like, wow, it's, it's the taking of risks that and, and having those experiences of the risks that we take and that actually are the pieces that form the memories that people are treasuring more than anything else. But risk always means fear and overcoming fear and in doing things anyway, even though you're afraid. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that I pick up from, from your story uh, with it is that it's, you know, you got to get comfortable with that and also got to get comfortable with with how having things not work out most of the time, because when they do, they can be huge if you're playing the right game. Yeah. And um, I guess, you know, the no is just a no and we have to re respect it and move on. And someone's no today will change. And one of the things that we do a lot as people is we, when we get rejected, we think that rejections forever. So we don't follow up with that person that rejected us. And I, I don't have that problem. I, I follow up 69 times over 90 days with people who've called me to sell me their house. So I want them to say no 68 times before I get to the last follow-up. Because I, I absolutely know that every time I touch someone, their brain is working in a way that's causing them to think about selling their house. And I want to be there ready to, to buy it when they decide to sell it because they're going to be fickle. They don't care who I am. They're going to sell it to the first person who raises their hand with a buck a little money for them. And I have, my job is to be there right in front of them. And so 69 times out of 90 days. And, you know, it's, it's calls, it's texts, it's emails, and it's ringless voicemails and mail. And uh, I think it's our job as real estate investors to, to stay up in, in front of our prospects. That's awesome, Michael. And in terms of a, a lesson learned today, I think I've, I've already shared a couple of them. And what would you like to leave the audience with a, a lesson learned from the stories that you've shared today? The, the biggest one that it was an aha moment in my life is to get rid of the wish words. So, and we have them, we have the want, we wish, we hope, we need, 
get to completely stop using those words in our life. So instead of saying like, when we were kids, we go, man, I sure wish I got a bicycle for Christmas. I want a bicycle for Christmas. If you change those four words into the word require, you'll get the bicycle for Christmas. So if you require your success, you will then have success. But if you just wish for it or hope it happens or want it to happen, or would like to have it happen, you're giving away yourself a way out, a way to say, oh, if it doesn't happen, it's okay. But when you require air and water and food to survive, then you're going to find air, water, and food. Um, they're not wishful things. They're requirements. And so treat your life like it's a requirement. That's all I got. That's awesome, Michael. And, and uh, for everybody looking to connect with you, who are you looking to connect with and what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, go to my website, michaelquarles.com. And say hello. Anybody that has a, a question about real estate, there's a, a way to set an appointment to say hello to me and ask me your question. Um, but yeah, that's all it is. Um, don't stop. Anybody and everybody can do it. I, I love real estate because it's, it's colorblind. I mean, it, it doesn't, you don't have to be short, don't have to be tall. You can be skinny, you can be fat. You can be anybody you want and still buy houses from anywhere in the world. And um, it's a great life. That's awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show here today. And of course, everybody, this, I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith Esquire. I'm the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, your own one-stop shop for everything, real estate, asset protection, tax business, uh, you name it, we got it. Uh, this is the Real Estate Nerds Podcast, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you guys here again soon. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.